We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everybody, this is John from the Goo Goo Dolls, and you are listening to the LSQ Podcast. Hi, John Resnick. It's so nice to see you slash meet you. I'm so intrigued by the fact that in recent months, and you'll have to explain to me some of the timing of, of how it worked, but the fact that in general in recent months, not only... Are you working on a new Goo Goo Dolls album, but simultaneously putting together this rarities collection that by the time this episode comes out will have been in the world for a minute already. But I'm assuming from what I know about the past year and a half and what you've been working on that there was some overlap of the ideation of looking back and looking at the next thing. Yeah, yeah, it was it was kind of interesting, you know, how the how the rarities thing came came to be was that. You know, we, um, I was at my manager's office and uh, he had a closet full of DAT tapes. And if anybody is old enough to remember what a DAT tape is, it was a very short-lived sort of a form of cassette that, was, that would actually record digitally. So whatever. <laughs> but he didn't, he didn't have a DAT player and you can't find them. You can't, you can't just buy them anymore. So, so I found one on eBay and I sent it to him. And... Uh, he poured through, I mean, there had to be a hundred tapes, you know, and he poured through them and, and started picking out things that he liked. And it's, it's, I have no patience for those kind of things. Like, you know, I was never good at labeling everything. So, you know, what did, I mean, do you find, obviously you've compiled, uh, you know, retrospectives for Goo Goo Dolls over the years before, but do you find that when you're doing that, it puts you in a reflective place about your creative process? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's good to go back and listen to where you were um, and how you have evolved or not evolved. And uh, there's definitely lessons to be learned inside all of those those recordings, the live recordings, the outtakes, the tr- live train wrecks. I love those. I like, hey, listen to this. We're playing this song that we played 500 times. And this is where John hits the wrong note. And then the whole thing just collapses in front of 10,000 people. You know, and I, I enjoy that. I enjoy those moments. <laughs> I don't know why. They're very humbling, you know, but... Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's more of, a, I guess, of a sense of adventure and risk there, where obviously 
it, you know, and it's even a cliche to point out that when you're playing a song like Iris, for instance, that however many millions of times it feels like you've played it and technically probably almost a million times in reality too, that it's hard to connect with it still. I mean, do you find that it's, you know, that it's hard to connect with the more popular songs? You know what? No, I don't. And let me explain to you why. Because, because I'm grateful for those songs. Like, you know, I can afford to live in a house. I can, I can afford to have health insurance. I can afford, you know, to have a normal life and give my kid some things. And, and, and um, the gratitude take, always takes the place. And the other thing that, that, that I'm grateful for is that I'll start playing a song, one of the more popular songs. And that like about three seconds into it, you hear that in the audience. And I'm like, that's awesome. That's amazing. That is what we all dream about when we're singing into the hairbrush, you know, when we're kids. And, uh, and I, get, I get that. And it's like, I get to have that. And I'm like, that is really cool. I, you know, I, I found myself, you know, I have a few rock star acquaintances, not too many close friends in the music business because I don't know why. But uh, I tend to keep to myself. But, uh, you know, I've heard guys talk about, oh, if I have to play that song one more time, I'm going to kill. It's like, dude, dude, that song bought you a house, right? Come on, man. Be grateful for it. Absolutely. No, that's an amazing perspective. And, and yeah, I, I, I guess I just meant more like the, it's almost like a muscle memory thing, I would imagine, at a certain oh, yeah. point. And it's, like, easy. You have to remind yourself, you know, not to go into, like, rote mode where you're just, like, I, my arms are playing it. My voice is singing yeah. it. And just be, no. like, no, feel it. It's, it's you get, like, that more yeah. that kind of thing than, than any kind of begrudging the song. Because, obviously, all your, you know, it's, like, it is weird. And I'm interested to get into, as we talk about your history making music, uh, to talk about that era too, where this feeling of like having to almost apologize for having a hit or something, oh. but is is a thing. But let's go back before yeah. that first to you uh, describe the idea of singing into the hairbrush. I would like something. I would like to touch on that point when we get to it, though. Oh yeah, no, I want to yeah. I want to talk about that for sure. But let's let's talk about this early moment when you're the kid with the hairbrush or whatever was your early moment of finding that urge within yourself. What do you, what are your earliest memories of? of that thing um my earliest memories of that thing was was really like waking up in my bed i i remember like i think it was i was in first grade and having and just laying in my bed sleeping or you know and then waking up and starting to sing and like like smack myself on the leg and i'm singing because uh we were always listening to music in our house you know and 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 just very early age, like finding myself singing a song or like, or with your mouth, you play guitar with your mouth, and like, you know, one of those silly things. And what was, and what was the, and were you hearing music on the radio that you loved at that age already? Yeah, I was hearing music that I liked on the radio, you know, I mean, was it, it was a really interesting time because AM radio was a very, was a viable outlet for, for, for music you know, and um, even at that time, 
And uh, so, you, you know, you'd listen to whatever was on, you know, WKBW, 50,000 watts, you know, out of Buffalo, New York. And, uh, you know, you do that. And then, and then uh, there was the progressive rock radio station. I'll talk very quietly. This is, you know, this is Genesis with the lab lies down on Broadway. So there are a lot of different influences coming in and, and like really, you know, listening to music. I, there was always music that I loved on the radio, but I was fortunate enough to have four older sisters who were kind of hipsters, you know, prototype hipsters and um, turning me on to all kinds of underground music. And Buffalo had a couple of underground record shops, you know, where as a, as a, a young teenager, I would go there and, and you'd learn, you'd learn from the guys behind the counter working there. They, hey, listen to this kid, you know. But right, right. But, but uh, your sis, your sisters had their shit, and that they were, and that they introduced you to, and the record store clerks have their shit. But what was the first things that felt like your shit, where you're like, oh, of all of this stuff, I'm finding this is what truly is my favorite. Like, okay, what were your uh, earliest favorites? Earliest, earliest thing I can remember, really, truly, was the first Cars album. I was like blown away by it. Uh, ELO's Out of the Blue. I was blown away by that record. Uh, you know, Kiss Alive, every boy goes through that phase. <laughs> and yeah. and uh, even the, yeah, like she's almost 50 years later. You know, I, that album had this visceral effect on me. And um, and then, you know, like the first Clash record, the Ramones, uh, the Stones, like some girls. I just remember that record just being, you know, heavy rotation at the house, you know, and and just, you know, being turned on to a lot of really cool things. We, you know, it was really funny because the way that we would have to buy music in our house, because we didn't, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. So I was exposed to greatest hits records and compilations and things like that at a very early age. So I like, I very much got into singles and like the way that I'm like, the way that I think that listening to radio singles and, and those kind of things kind of affects the way your process of, of writing songs, you know, me, at least it did for me because I was always like, I, I don't know why, but I was always so concerned about the hook. Gotta have a hook. Gotta have a hook. You know, and, and you know, I think, yeah, you know, you gotta have a little bit of a story. You gotta, you gotta have a little bit of a story, but you gotta have a hook. Yeah. Well, it's also like, it's, it's, it's the structure. Yeah. The rule, the, the rules of pop song craft that are useful to learn or something. Yeah. Like if you spend enough hours listening to it, you're like, okay, it forms the basis of, and, and that stuff is real for whatever reason, you know, the, like, how long does it take to get to the, to the vocals? How long does it take to get to the chorus? You know, like yeah. is stuff that we and all know what our attention spans are like, you know? Yeah. And those things change as time goes on. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, now, now it's like, you know, when I listen to the radio, I'm like, wow, there isn't one real instrument on this song. And it starts with the hook. <laughs> and it just kind of stay. it's, it's interesting. And there's a lot of really interesting, cool new music out there. I don't hear too much on, on, you know, pop top 40 type radio that appeals to me, but, you know, I'm an older guy. So it's like, why should it?
and yeah. I don't write, and I don't write music for teenagers anymore because I'm not one. Yeah, I I try and remember that when I listen to pop music that I really don't I don't want to say don't get, but where I'm just like, oh wow, interesting. When I feel the most like an like an you know an anthropologist or something about <laughs> looking at it from over here, where I'm like, Ooh, yeah, what are, what are they doing, the kids these days? Oh, they're doing that. I love how minimal pop music is now, you know, like there's a lot of very minimalistic, but the amount of production that goes into making it sound that minimal is overwhelming. And I'm like, I do that too. I'll listen to a song and I'll just be like, and then I'll go over the lyrics and it's really only about like four lines of lyrics and, you know, just like this drum and bass thing and like maybe a little keyboard thing piles mountains of vocals and then you look you look at the credits and it's like there's five producers 10 songwriters and you're like wow it's like it must have taken a lot of work we took it all we brought them to our land an endless night ember hot and icy cold the rage of the earth we made this curse, carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see, we could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. <laughs> That's a lot of checks to write by all those people. Nobody's getting rich. <laughs> When did you start to see kind of this, the lanes combining of like having this affinity for songwriting yourself as a kid and loving the music you were listening to? When did you start to picture them as kind of the same thing that, oh, this is something I could do and then start uh, doing music in a real way? Well, I, I mean, I started listening to, in my mind at the time, you know, a band like The Replacements or The Ramones or Tommy Keen or, or uh, I mean, they were all... They were rock stars. They were rock stars. But, you know, I mean, they were never big, big arena rock bands, you know. But to me, they were rock stars. And it was just music that I could relate to, that I felt. You know, I, I felt like, you know, I mean, there were there were writers when, when it was like alt rock and college rock, you know, whatever they, they were calling it in the 80s. <laughs> that it was like, it was, um, there was a lot of great emotion. And they were good storytellers, you know, in all yeah. bands. And 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 uh, it was just something that I could relate to because it wasn't Iron Maiden, who I mean, I actually like Zeppelin and Iron Maiden and stuff like that more now than I did back then, because I had my my head up my ass because I was super cool indie rock, underground, you know, freakiest kid at my school thing, you know, <laughs> and um, <laughs> you know. Yeah, so how did, so did you find other freaky kids, the other slightly less freaky kids to play with in, in high school? Uh, I found I found freaks yeah. to play with in high school. And I and I left home when I was 16 and um, and I moved into the college neighborhood with all the college kids. And uh, through my sister, I met a bunch of college people. They were older than me. You know, they were all like three, four years older than I was. You know, and they were doing interesting things, and they they went out, and then everybody was going to art school, so it was kind of like I was exposed to a lot of really strange, like you know, filmmaking, bands, 
you know, artists, you know, and they were, and they were all at the, the, the university in the neighborhood where we lived and, and there was always a party going on. So it was kind of fun to be, you know, 16 hanging out with all these. Yeah. Ups, you know, and like, did you get to see shows during that era? Yeah, you know, I mean, they were always playing shows at the at the at the college campus. You know, I got to see The Cure really early on. I got to see Echo and the Bunnymen very early on. I got to see, you know, REM pretty early on, and and uh, you know, just all these bands that sort of became very important to me. Yeah, and so what was your what was the first band uh, that experience or setup you had that felt like it was it could be something or was that indeed Goo Goo Dolls? <laughs> my my first band. Yeah, did you have an early kind of kid band that was oh. practice? Well, I mean, I was in a million bands in high school. Like you know, it was all the same people, but you just changed the name and say, "Now nah, I'm going to play like this." Is I want to play more of this kind of music? You know? Okay, all right, fine. So, you know, and, and uh, I, was never in, I was never in a cover band. I was, I was never in a cover band. I mean, I would do a cover song or two in a set, but it was just, to me, really, it was just, it was too hard to learn how to play those songs. So, so we would just, you know, make up our own. And play. Yeah. Yeah, you played backyards. People, you know, okay, you know, Jimmy's mom and dad are they're going out. So we're having a party at his house tonight. Let's go. You bring the you know you bring your little amp and your guitar and you know so and fun. when when did you start playing shows at venues and stuff like that i think uh the band that i was in right before i joined i i formed goo goo dolls uh so like around 19 18 yeah um and uh we would yeah we would play at the continental which was the you know that was the cbgb's of buffalo you know, and everybody that played at CBS played at the Continental. So it was cool. Yeah. I had a job working there as a bar back, you know, and, and, you know, cleaning and doing all that kind of thing, you know, and um, my boss there was a guy named Bud who, who ran that whole thing. And it was, and it was like this umbrella, you know, because it was like, this awesome dance club upstairs, you know, that played all the New Order remixes. You know, there was a like <laughs> New Order remix and, and Depeche Mode remix every week. The so, extended, extended mix. Double extended halftime remix. You know, <laughs> and like, you know, so you got exposed to all this different kind of music, you know, and I love Depeche Mode and I love The Cure and The Smiths and Elvis Costello and I, you know, all this music and The Police and, and, you know, oddly enough, I wound up playing in like hardcore punk bands, but they were always very melodic. And that's what I loved, but I couldn't, I wasn't into the uh, less melodic, more uh, rooted in metal kind of punk. I was, was not into that. You know, nothing, there's no, no offense to it. You know, it just wasn't my thing. I, I, I love melody. I, lo- I love, I love a big hook. I love good singing and, um, and to me, good singing isn't, you know, having, you know, these crazy soulful chops. It's just, it's delivering a message with conviction. You yeah. Know? And, and, you know, guys like Tom Petty and Bruce Springsteen were, you know, and the Kinks and the Who uh, and the Stones. Those are bands that you, you always listen to and the Beatles, irrespective of how 
cool I was trying to be because that's that's the that's the genesis of of where all that music came from especially the who and the kings you know Huge. Yeah, it makes me wonder nowadays what are the artists that are a given for everyone to listen to mixed in with what with the fluctuating new stuff. Like, you know, for people in their 20s now, like what are the three like for us where it'd be like, oh, yeah, well, duh, obviously you you listen to the Beatles and you listen to, you know, for me, the Kinks is an obvious one, too. Or, you know, I think a lot of people from my generation have kind of Radiohead as a given. Yeah. It's just like, of course I like Radiohead, you know? Yeah. It's interesting because um, my wife's niece lives with us. She's a college kid. And uh, she sends me songs and bands and stuff that she digs. And then, and then I send her back the bands from <laughs> my generation that I think that sounds like. So we have this back and forth going. And I'm like, you hear the influence, you know, we, we have to, you know, history, history is important when you listen to new music. Yeah, it is. Although I guess, you know, and uh, this is a sort of segue into what I was mentioning earlier, this sort of concept of, because you've talked a bit about kind of the indie scene and the idea of like, you know, what the cool kids think or something like that. You know, I do think it's, it's sweet nowadays, the way young people are they seem less like that. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but even within the niche of indie music that I that I kind of occupy, I think younger people nowadays aren't don't have that same thing that I'm curious to hear you talk about what it must have felt like to have been this guy who really cared about underground and independent music and came up in the scene and played in all these bands and did all the stuff. And then there's a certain point where it's just like, oh, you're mainstream now. Yeah. And you're like, but I'm that same guy. Like, what the fuck? Like, I feel like there's less yeah. chance of that happening to say the same if you were you now and twenty yeah. something years old. But yeah, I, tell I, me a bit. Tell me a bit about that. What that felt like for you, and kind of how you've how you've navigated that in the long view. Well, we lost a lot of um, our initial fan base. You know, I mean, I wrote when I wrote that song name, um, and then all of a sudden, I mean, we, you know, we would sell fifty thousand records, something like that. Um, you know, a hundred thousand, maybe, you know, one did that. And then, you know, so we, we were, we were underground darlings playing bigger clubs and smaller theaters. And the only people that write about you when you're in that position are people that like you, you know, and the only people that come to see you are people that like you and, and, you know, which is great. But um, then all of a sudden, boom, this song pops up on the radio and yet I felt as though I needed to apologize to a lot of people, you know, like, gee, I really didn't do anything. I just, this song, I never thought that we were going to blow up that big and sell, you know, 3 million records at that time or whatever it was. A lot of people, and I remember I did the same thing with you too, because, because I was just <laughs> I love this band. I love this band. I love this band. And then, and then when they played at the big auditorium, I was just like, fuck those guys, man. <laughs> they were, they were, they were, they were they better were when they were on whatever label, you know? Yeah. You know, it's like, but you know, I mean, we bounced from two indie labels to a major and, um, and it looks like an overnight success. And, um, um, but nobody sees the nine years you were in a van and you'd come home and you'd be homeless and jobless. And if you, if you were extra charming, 
you might have a girlfriend to come home to and she could, <laughs> she could prop you up for a little while till you got a day job, you know, and, and like, you know, what I found was really, really interesting. The, the, the lessons that I learned during the early van, van touring, well, you know, I mean, we did that for eight, nine years. Um, we were out in a van, you know, um, sleeping on people's floors and, uh, you know, finding people in the audience. Hey, can we stay with you guys? You know, we'll give you a t-shirt if you let us stay with or we'll bring the beer or whatever. And, um, and of course, you got to stay up with them and party because they want to party with you. And, um, and I remember bringing tons of blank cassettes with me. And, uh, and like, whenever I had the opportunity to dig through someone's record collection, and just asking, can I make a mixtape of all these days? And I learned so much and asking these people, so tell me what you're listening to, show me what you, you know, and just learning a lot about music that way too. You know, staying at a hardcore guy's house, you know, it's like, you know, you're, you're starting to pick up a lot more of like the, the GVH, Henry Rollins kind of, you know, Black Flag, that kind of, that kind of thing those are bad brains. I just remember bad brains to me. I just want to point this out because bad brains to me was just so melodic as chaotic as it was. And the same thing with Husker Du. I'm listening and I feel as though I'm having an aural hallucination because of the way that Bob Mool played the guitar and the, the dissonance was so beautiful um and 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 so melodic you know i just i love those records because they would take me in my brain the way my brain was processing the sound it's just i was hearing all kinds of strange dissonant counter melodies and things it's just no, it's crazy. I was thinking that kind of thing yesterday. I was just like driving over the Williamsburg Bridge listening to, I don't even remember. It was a song I've probably listened to a million times, but I was just thinking sort of like music is crazy that it just, people can play certain tones or combine certain tones, certain ways that you're like, it, it feels like something's happening. You know, it feels like something physical is happening in the space you're in with it. And you're like, it's just, I could press stop and then it ends. Whatever was happening stops when I press stop. Uh, which is, you know, it's corny, but it's such a cool thing. But, but, you know, on that, to that point, you know, the flip side of feeling like this sort of annoyingly, like annoyingly, you want to apologize, even though you're stoked to have the success, both because it brings stability and because it's a validation of this thing you made that you care about a lot. But yeah. I, but I'm, I'm curious, as you saw the success of name, it must've lit a fire under you just to be like, you know what? I want more of that though, even though this is weird, I want to do that again. I want to write songs that, that tr translate that far. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was the thing about that song name as much shit as I got for it. I got a hundred times as much shit for Iris, but, but uh, <laughs> the letters and the cards and things that I would get from people talking about that song. And even to this day, you know, when that's, that's one of those songs. We have a few of these songs. They're like um, they're like medicine, in a way. People have described it that way to me. You know, man, got me through some hard times. I know a lot of artists hear that, and it's it's such a flattering thing in a strange way because you're like, wow, 
I don't know, you know, my old man was always like, you know, try to leave, try to leave the place a little better than you found it. And it's like, well, as infinitesimally small as that little bit is, maybe I helped that person's life out for even if it was for only three minutes. And this is what this person is telling me. But that's the highest form of flattery, that that can touch a nerve. You know, and then you look at an artist like Springsteen, just like he's a juggernaut, you know, at, at being relatable. And then, you know, those are great things. This last record that I'm, I've, I've just finished doing a bunch of music for, you know, I produced it myself. And, um, and I made a hard left turn because I felt like it was time. And I didn't, I didn't collaborate much with people. I wrote most of it myself again, which I haven't done in a while. Because I was like, when the collaborative process works, one plus one equals three. And, and it's a great thing. And, I, and I've had so much fun hanging out with my, my writing buddies and, and doing that. But I, but I just felt this, this need to face that blank page by myself, which is terrifying. I mean, come on, you know, the worst it's, it's horrifying, but then you gotta, I mean, you just, you know, I have to just go, well, you know, why, why are you feeling that way? You know, and this is where experience comes in. It's like, why do you feel that way? Cause I'm afraid nobody's going to like it. Well, fuck them. If they don't like it, <laughs> it's like, it's pretty simple, you know, just be yeah. honest. Yeah, totally. Well, tell me a little more about your process, your songwriting process nowadays. And, and yeah, what, what is your practice? What does it look like? My practice is no practice. <laughs> um, and it's very much like, like I went in the studio with my engineer and I was sitting there fumbling with drum machines and, you know, just putting a couple of beats. I got a friend who's a really good drummer. And I just said, just lay some grooves down for me and just let me play along to them and things like that. And then I made these little tiny recordings, you know, of ideas, either on a piano or a bass, or I'd build it up a little bit more. And then I went, I wanted to do it the way that I did it when we were first starting out, which was drummer, bass player, me in a room, banging it out for hours and hours and hours until some until and the song starts to morph and it starts to solidify and it the 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 shape becomes more apparent you know and uh and it's like you know the accidents that happen or i'm going here you guys try to follow me you know or you're yelling into the microphone whatever go to go to b minor you know and then you know, whatever and then and all these glorious train wrecks. And then you're listening back and you're like, see, you hear that right there? Let's take that piece and repeat it over and over. So it's really kind of an organic process. Again, this time for us, it was very, very organic. And we recorded most of it analog. And then we'll dump it into digital because I like to, because there's, there's things in the digital realm that you just can't, physically can't do with, with a physical piece of studio gear. And I have this immense collection of vintage recording equipment. What I got sick of was the ability to put every thought that came out of my head onto the track. 
because it's like, it, because I felt like it was causing me to fall in love with every idea I had. Well, I have 19 guitars on this song, whereas a good producer, when I was a kid, would say, yeah, your 19 ideas, uh, pick the two best ones, because that's all we got room for. We don't have room yeah. for any more. Okay, all right. So it forced me into a position where I had to make really good choices and be clever about the way I'm going to arrange and, and make these songs work. And I, think, and, and I think it made the songs tougher and leaner and more to the point, you know? Plus, you know, I hate to be that guy, but analog just sounds better. You know, using, using a 75-year-old uh, microphone with a 50-year-old mic pre and EQ, you know, and a, and a 60-year-old limiter and, and an old spring reverb and things like that. To me, there's a certain richness about that, that the vast majority of digital plugins are trying to emulate. You know, I, but once again, it, it comes down to, I got to be able to sit down at a piano and play this song. Um, or I melody always the melody yeah it's got to be about the melody have it and you got to have a hook and you got to have a little bit of a story yeah you get down to the heart of the 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 core thing the melody thing is it is it still sort of or do you know it when you hear it coming out of your mouth where you're just like ooh, that that melody has that has legs yeah 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 I will I do know that and that's something melody is pretty easy for me Harmony's not so easy, uh, and lyrics are not easy, you know. Um, but yeah, now I'm in this this headspace where it's like, no, I, I have to write this. I I I got to write my own mind, my own piece, because you know, I was very 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 into the collaborative process. I loved that. There was a certain amount of safety in it that I had to walk away from, you know, because if you're not if you're not taking a risk. You're not, you're not going, I'm not going. If I'm not taking a risk, I'm not going anywhere. But me, like everybody else, I would rather go out in the backyard, go over to Home Depot. Like somebody's like, John, you got to finish the lyrics for this song. And I'll be like, well, I just was at the Home Depot and I got everything I need to build a geodesic dome. So I'm busy with that for the next six weeks. So, <laughs> you know, and then the night before I need the right I gotta write these you know <laughs> it's like but I I I will yeah I'll put a new roof on the house you know? it's funny though because when you talk about making music the process the uh, different processes you obviously fucking love it but you procrastinate it nonetheless which I I get I do that with things I like doing and my my, my passions as well but <laughs> you're like then when you're doing it you're enjoying it so much you're like why did I put this off I fucking love this yeah, and there's and there's certain people that I love to just have in the room while I'm writing. Like, you know, I love my engineer. He's he's amazing. And he's the kind of engineer that that will he's young. He's 20 years younger than I am. So it's interesting to get that younger perspective. He's 25 years younger than me. And somebody who is very much a student of old school recording for, for such a young guy, I never expected it. He's the kind of engineer that will turn around and kind of look at me like, and I'll be like, <laughs> Go, uh, take it back. Let's try something else. 
engineer yeah. side eye engineer. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's good to have that, you know, and like, you know, um, what else I find interesting now is that I, I don't really play anything for anybody, not my manager, nobody, until until I have it in a more complete form, you know, because I don't think people understand it. Like I'm hearing what's finished in my head, but and I'm like, this is great, and they're like, I don't hear it. I don't hear it. What are you, what are you stupid? Let's just listen. Yeah, but so I just avoid that now, and I keep everything kind of hidden, and then I'm like, here it is, you know, <laughs> like so. So that's, that's, that's kind of a liberating place to be. You know, I don't, I don't feel so, I don't need so much approval from the outside. You know what I mean? But we all want it. And it's funny because I, I was, I was, I was talking to a therapist about like, you know, what I do for a living and everything like that. And, da, 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 and she was fascinated by it. And I was just like, I said, I get the feeling somewhere in the back of my mind, very deep in my subconscious I wanted approval so bad <laughs> that I learned how to sing and play and write and do all these things so that I could get approval from a lot of people. You know, that's kind of embarrassing to admit that. But at the same time, it's like never met a, never met a kid that picked up a guitar or sat down at a piano that didn't see themselves at Madison Square Garden and being excited by that fantasy i think sometimes in a lot of cases it's like the most brilliant people that i have ever met are the people who have uh the most profound damage or the most or or the hole that can't be filled you know it's and it's interesting to me yeah but it must are you you must be starting to get stoked about going to the other side of this weird reality where suddenly you're going to go back in 2022 and do a thing you've done a million times and it'll feel a little different, but it'll also feel kind of the same, right? It'll feel new, yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? I, I really enjoy that time. You know, and the album will come out next year as well? or Well, yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm, yeah. I'm going to make sure that everything is lined up, right. <laughs> you know? So, so the album will be out. I mean, there'll be a, a couple of singles out, I'm sure, before the album and the tour, and the album will come out, and we'll hopefully you know, the plan will work. And if it doesn't, you know, you just go back and do it again. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I, it, I feel as though it'll be obvious when it's time for me to leave the party, you know? So. Dude, don't leave. Come on. I'm not leaving. <laughs> no, I still. We've only just met. You can't I leave. I know. I, I still have my hair. <laughs> I can't go nowhere. <laughs> I mean, it may shrink or it may grow. I don't know, but, but, but it's something that I still feel like I have something to say and people still come to see us. So. Well, thank you so much, John, for connecting with me to do this. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. I'm very happy we got to talk. All right. Big thanks to John Resnick for that conversation. I loved it. Uh, and Goo Goo Dolls will be on tour next year, and they'll have a new album for us then as well. I'm Jenny Ellisque. Thanks so much for listening. The next episode of the LSQ podcast is with film score composer Danny Elfman. That'll be out in a few weeks. And then I've also got Adam from The War on Drugs and Courtney Barnett before this season is up. Subscribe if you weren't doing that already. And you can reach me with questions and feedback on Twitter, at Jenny LSQ. I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>